1: It was when you came on your official visit they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame and you got the
2: and there's a Now that's
0: a follow up <laughs> question Eric Hansen That's a heck of a follow up question right there
1: If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them man it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are that, that'll always be the same But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the
2: wide, broad scope of the sport right now.
0: Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you're probably calling me around a drink.
1: From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold, an ND Insider podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. With the NCAA crawling closer to a resolution on name, image, and likeness rules, we wanted to spend some time this offseason looking at what's causing the delay a bit and what the eventual impact will be on college football Um, And we definitely needed someone smarter than us to start that conversation. So We asked Michael McCann, a legal analyst and senior sports legal reporter for Sportico, who happens to be a lawyer and law professor as well. I'm not sure how he has the time for all that, uh, to share his knowledge with us on the podcast. So, Michael, thanks for joining us.
0: Tyler, thanks for having me on. Eric, thanks for having me on as well. I don't know about the smarter part, but, uh, you know, I have to look at this stuff all the time. So you pick things up over just by repetition.
1: Sure. I wanted to start sort of just maybe bigger picture. What's the, what's the biggest issue that sort of prevented the NCA from formalizing these new rules with regard to the name, image, and likeness?
0: I think the big issue is the NCAA has just been historically reluctant to make change. We've seen that over the years. It's a, it's a static organization. They like things the way they are and they've always been reluctant to change. And, and, and I think, To their detriment here, to be honest, I think this is a topic that was addressable 15 years ago, uh, before Ed O'Bannon brought a case. There's really no, in my view, this is a topic that should have been resolved a while ago. The, The reason for the delay now, at least from the NCAA's perspective, is that several states have passed name, image, and likeness statutes that go beyond what the NCAA wants to do. There are also... Senators and members of Congress that have proposed legislation that could come to pass that the NCAA would likely regard as going too far. And then the most recent, well, two recent things that have occurred. One is that the Justice Department sent a letter to the NCAA saying, if you adopt name, image, and likeness, you better not do it in a way that violates antitrust law. Although that letter was written by someone who, who didn't remain on when President Biden took over. So it's not clear how impactful that letter is. And then most recently is the Supreme Court taking the Alston case, which is about a similar issue in terms of whether or not scholarships and grants and aids can be capped by the NCAA or whether they should be subject to the free market. The Supreme Court's going to hear that case on March 31st. So the NCAA could say, well, we want to wait until the Supreme Court voices an opinion on this. But they really can't wait that long because the Florida law for name, image and likeness goes into effect in july so this is the clock's ticking
2: okay that's what when you mention the timeline that's what i kind of want to get a sense of if you can even do that at this point i know at one point it looked like it was definitely going to be july of 2021 has that moved or or do we feel like this is when we're going to start getting some legs on this and and getting a at least a shape of what this is going to look like and that kind of thing.
0: So I think we could get a shape if the NCAA decides what it wants to do. January was the timeline where we all expected the NCAA to announce, here is what we're going to use for college athletes to be able to sign endorsement deals, hire agents, sponsor camps, do things like that. That was supposed to be in January with the idea that college athletic departments would have a handful of months until the fall, really, I guess the summer, uh, the start of the 21-22 school year to get those changes up to speed. But now, if the NCAA announces, let's say in May or June, here's what we're going to do, that really leaves schools very little time to get things together for the start of sports next year. And I, I imagine a lot of schools would say, we need another year or we need at least until next January, because this is going to be really different for schools. This is going to be college athletes signing endorsement deals. It's going to be college athletes pursuing endorsement deals and some of them will get them, but many may not. And what is the role of the compliance officer and how, do, how does a school know that, you know, it's an endorsement deal, but it isn't pay for play, right? I mean, if a local car dealer says, here's a million dollars is an endorsement, somebody may say, well, that probably really isn't an endorsement because that person isn't worth that much. Uh, so th- there's a lot for school I, that, you know, these are things that can be resolved, but they're not overnight things either.
1: Michael, has the NCA maybe taken a risk by continuing to delay the creation of these rules? I mean, you said earlier that you thought this should have happened a long time ago. Have they put themselves in a bad position by, I mean, the Uh, politicians seem to be really pushing for different plans now when maybe they would have been able to sort of create their own rules uh, beforehand and the politicians wouldn't have gotten as involved.
0: 100% agree, Eric, Uh, excuse me, Tyler. That, That was, this is, this is a topic that the NCAA could have controlled and by not taking action, they have allowed the court system. And like you noted politicians to come in and command the topic and take away the NCAA's authority. At the end of the day, the NCAA could lose a lot here, much more than name, image, and likeness, the fight over that. Some of the federal legislation contemplates a board that would oversee college sports that would seem to replicate some of what the NCAA does, some of the autonomy that the NCAA has. So I think, I mean, why wait for politicians? Their their interests are not necessarily aligned with the NCAA and, some of the legislation that's been proposed w- would really change things, that way beyond name, image, and likeness, into college athletes forming associations and negotiating. Uh, very different from what we see now. So, yeah, I, I think, uh, and they may have also miscalculated. Look, the this Congress is now controlled by, and the White House are controlled by one party, so that makes it more likely that something will get through. And if the NCAA was banking, I'm not they did, but if they were banking on divided government, that assumption is proven wrong because now it's very possible that something could get through that the NCAA views as, as much more transformative than they're comfortable with.
2: Michael, I'll be honest with you. It's, this seemed, the enormity of this seems overwhelming to my sports mind. And so I've kind of backburner, backburner, backburnered it. And, and I've tried to reduce it to just a couple questions that I get the most. And one is, I think a lot of fans want to know, is this going to help my school recruit better? And how easy is it going to be for the schools that recruits against to abuse it? What, what would you say to those questions?
0: I'd say in the first one, schools that have the resources and that are willing to embrace the new world could thrive and Notre Dame as a school has a brand that's so powerful that I would imagine that a school like Notre Dame could could really benefit from name, image, and likeness because they would be able to... Certainly a, a college athlete at, at Notre Dame has a different profile than at almost any other school. So if I'm recruiting athletes, if I'm the school... In a world where NIL is, is, is accepted and you know for, forget all the details of it, but it's, it's allowed... Yeah, I mean Notre Dame or other schools, Alabama. I mean there are other sort of elite athletic schools, and plus with Notre Dame you have elite academics as well. I mean I don't know. I guess I feel like there would there would be a pretty effective uh, marketing opportunity for the school to to recruit athletes, but they would have to do it in a way that adds value to the recruit. Maybe that would be telling the parent, the parent and the and the high school athlete, look, you come here. And we have an organization in place to help all of our athletes monetize their name, image, and likeness. We will provide advice on endorsement opportunities. We will uh, maybe negotiate for the athlete. I mean, Who knows? There's all sorts of ways in which uh, it could be done. So uh, I think for schools that have the, the brand name and the, the economic wherewithal, they could do a lot. We've already seen some schools announce NIL-like programs. Uh, you know, Texas has something that, that's sort of talking about, uh, you know, the rights of athletes and name, image, and likeness. I mean, it's, it's it's only a matter of time before these big schools take advantage of it. The, the exploitation question, sure. Uh, but I think we've already seen that, right? We've already seen yeah. there's a lot of corruption in recruiting. Uh, I, I don't know if this is necessarily a game-changer. I would always say, try to do things transparently. Uh, We saw with the college basketball recruiting scandal, money going under the table. That's not really a good system for anyone involved. It also creates criminal penalties in terms of wire fraud. So it could happen here. Uh, There could be, I I worry that some schools or some agents who enter this space will manipulate recruits, uh, manipulate their parents in ways, I mean, th- this always happens anyway. So I don't, this isn't unique to this, but I do worry. And I think for the agent field, th- there needs to be some type of overseeing body of agents because although I think most agents do great work and are, and are ethical, uh, all it takes is one to, to be abusive. So uh, what is the role of the agent in this recruiting process? I think that remains to be seen.
1: Michael, what, what, would ha- what could or would happen if we get to July and Florida's law goes into effect and the NCAA hasn't established its rules, do you think the NCAA will sort of fight that or sort of let Florida exist on its own for the time being? What, what do you what do you anticipate happening there?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. If I had to guess, they'll go to court before then. They'll seek an injunction blocking Florida law from going into effect. They would argue that it's a violation of interstate commerce that the that the state of Florida is trying to regulate the economies across the because it basically forces the NCAA to either change its rules uh, or forces other states to change its rules. That's an argument. There was a case that the Miller case back in the early nineties, it involved UNLV and, and uh, corruption there. The state basically created new procedural guidelines that ensured that, th- that those investigated by the NCAA have due process. The NCAA said that goes against our rules. Uh, they went to, the NCAA went to court and one. I don't know if that would happen here, but I think we'll see a legal fight. Uh, I would imagine it would occur probably, I don't know, in May, we could see a filing for an injunction, maybe June. That, that's what I, I mean, I could be way off. I just would yeah. think they're not going to sit back and let, because what you, I mean, think of, the, think of what you just asked, right? Like if Florida does its own thing, they're going to have an enormous recruiting advantage over other schools. And I, I just think members, I imagine other members are going to say, Hey NCAA, you you can't let this happen.
2: Michael, I think it was in one of your articles I was reading the potential for athletes to monetize social media somehow. What would that kind of look like? What would be some examples where they could do that?
0: I think the the influencers, the those who have big Instagram followings, uh, others online, and, and you know, Eric, it's it's a thing where. I could see athletes who maybe aren't star quarterbacks or future NBA draft picks. Some of them, maybe lesser athletes, and they're still phenomenal, but just relative to the competition, some of them have pretty significant followings on social media. And I think they'll be positioned to do pretty well with name, image, and likeness. So they could be paid to post things.
1: You know, there's some
0: people who get paid, uh, I've heard of it. I've, I've never done it, but <laughs> I've heard people get paid to uh, to post things on social media, and that's something that would go to name, image, and likeness. That if they have a big Instagram following, uh, they may be able to uh,
2: to capitalize on that. My- nobody
0: wants. Nobody wants me to. <laughs> I'm,
2: I'm useless on that world. <laughs> me too. I, I think they would pay me not to post <laughs> endorsements. <laughs> Michael, you've been covering uh, sports
1: law for quite some time now. How big, how big is this story in terms of its uh, gra- the gravity of the situation compared to maybe some other stories you've covered with- when it comes to sports law oh, oh, through your career?
0: Yeah, I think in a way it's the biggest be- because it's so transformative for a whole industry. That college sports will be very different with name, image, and this, like, Even though I, I think we're not gonna see everyone benefit. I mean, most college athletes probably are not signing endorsement deals, right? Most college athletes are not necessarily public figures, but I think the big change will be less maybe what it means for the athletes, but more what it means for schools, that they're going to have to sort of embrace this world or get left behind. And the schools that say, look, whether we like name, image, and likeness or not, it's here we don't want our rivals to sort of run into this space and create a level of expertise where they can out recruit us because they're going to tell high school athletes and their parents, you come to our school, we will maximize your brand. A a school that's thinking forward is going to have to embrace that. So in a way, I think it's just, it's an industry changing event that isn't necessarily, this isn't Kurt Flood challenging the reserve clause in baseball, but in its own way, it's almost more impactful just because it's going to affect the 1100 schools and all these other, you know, all these other people involved with college sports may, in a way that many would say is good, right? That, you know, what, why is it that coaches can make 10 million a year? Why do colleges spend on everything around the athlete, but not on the athlete himself or herself? You know, why are they building new stadiums? Why are they, Building new athletic facilities. Why are they paying coaches and staff? I mean, there's certainly that's a compelling argument, but I do think it's a big change. I mean, there, I've covered other stories over the years that, I mean, Aaron Hernandez murder trial, right? That was a very serious story that you know, was made was much more meaningful in the sense that someone died, multiple people died, uh, as we discovered. Uh, or in, you know, I'm in New England, deflate gate was a big story. I, I know nationally, maybe it wasn't as big, but it, it became big, but, but this is really about an industry changing.
2: Last one from me, Michael, do you envision this as something that they adopt some rules, they put it into practice, and then it's going to take some fine tuning for a while to get this right uh, once, once the bus gets moving on this? I think so. I think we'll see
0: it put into place, but there will be fine tuning. And I I think they just don't know what's going to happen when this goes into place. And I also think it's going to be interesting to see what schools can do and what they choose to do with their discretion. So for instance, we have seen at least one school partner up with a gambling company for a sponsorship. Will that school then be okay with a college athlete signing an endorsement deal with a gambling company as well, wow. right? <laughs> uh, or, I mean, think of other topics that are questionable. Um, you know, nightclubs. Will a school be okay with a college athlete endorsing a nightclub or having some free, free, free event? I don't want to say free drinks because they're not uh, of age. But I mean, there are, there are a lot of things that will worry people, and you know, in some cases they they may be rightfully worried. I mean, I think that that schools want. Schools I, will have to be able to preserve their brand. So no, tr- and I went to Georgetown, uh, another Catholic school. I mean, w- what's what's permissible at a Catholic school is just going to be different than than at a state school. I think in some cases, but so that will be interesting to see how that all plays out.
1: Well, what what's your best guess of what this looks like in the end? What what are the things that you think there will be some common ground on, and what what is the biggest sticking point of where? We, we might not see a, a resolution in terms of the name, image, and likeness uh, scenario.
0: Yeah, I, I think the a big sticking point are the so-called guardrails, that the NCAA wants to basically limit the marketplace, limit freedom for athletes, limit freedom for schools. And that seems to be a, a big sticking point between what the states that have passed NIL statutes have recommended and what the NCAA wants and there's also the antitrust issue. So if the NCAA comes up with a set of restrictions on what schools can do, that invites an antitrust challenge because it would suggest that all of these competitor, competing businesses the schools are restricting competition. The NCAA wants an exemption from antitrust law. I don't see the political appetite for it uh, from either party, really. There may be more, more support from some Republican members of the Senate, but some of them don't support that. And I don't think the Democrats support that. So they're probably not going to get that. So I think guardrails would be the big thing.
1: All right, Michael, that's all we got for you. We really appreciate you taking time to to share your insight. And hopefully that was educa- as educational to our listeners as it was to, to myself. And I imagine Eric, considering how much nodding we were
2: doing while you were talking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you, you got it down to digestible bites for me. So I, I feel like I'm smarter already. Well, Thanks. Thanks, guys. I appreciate that.
0: Now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys, are, are we done with USC? Yeah. Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right,
1: let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at E. NDI. First one I have for us, Eric, is from at Dan Quinlan. Will name, image, and likeness help ND or hurt us? Will it bring us closer to Alabama or bring teams below up closer to us? Any money limits uh, or could a pizza shop pay Tyler Buckner $1 million? Is it more likely to impact high school recruiting or the transfer portal? Florida allows it July 1st. So Dan, I don't know if he had access to our internal communications, but he had a well-timed question
2: for the topic that we were uh, planning on discussing today. Yeah. You know, hopefully all those were answered in our discussion. So if you just fast forward to hear your question, you'll want to back up and listen to what Michael McCann said, because I think a lot of it was answered there. And one of the answers is being, we still don't know everything. There's so many particulars that have to be hammered out in this, but I think one of the things that he wanted to know was, um, if, if it would be advantageous just to Notre Dame and Michael McCann's opinion was that that's kind of how he sees it, that there's potential there for Notre Dame to benefit from this. Yeah, I think trying to look to this question
1: for places I could add insight that Michael already didn't would be, I think it would probably be more impactful on high school recruiting than the transfer portal. Um, the transfer portal is usually more about playing time and getting to the NFL rather, rather than sort of like the whole package where the high, with, is what you're dealing with with, with high school recruiting. Um, and and I, I agree that I think it will likely help Notre Dame. I'm not sure how much of an advantage it will be. Um, I, I think the fact that they're in a small market like South Bend um, where these guys will be big fishes and they're not competing with um, professional athletes for local advertising dollars or, or, or deals – Um, will be beneficial
2: for those guys. So I think there's some serious opportunity there for for Notre Dame athletes. I I also think Notre Dame's national branding and even international branding helps. You know, when I do a chat every week, there's there's a few local questions in there, but the vast majority of them are from way outside our natural drawing for the South Bend Tribune. I mean, the Indian Cider and the South Bend Tribune have – and we're the same entity, but we have very different audiences. So that's going to be interesting. And, and again, sometimes, you know, some kids it's not going to be a big deal for, because they're looking, they're shopping for something else in their school. And some is, and I thought I'd tell the story about when I was covering Notre Dame basketball and it came down to how rent is calculated in the NCAA form, if you if you know who Ron Artest is, and he's also been Meta World Peace, and he's now uh, Meta something Artest. He's got another name change that I wrote down, and I'm not even sure of it, but uh, he's changed his name again. Anyways, he was a heck of a uh, high school basketball player, and Notre Dame had a real shot with him. In fact, they thought they had a verbal commitment from him, and then. St. John's came back with the fact that if you don't live in a dorm that you can live in an apartment and the NCAA kind of allots rent, how much rent money you get based on the market you're in. And St. John's was really high being in Queens. And so what the St. John's guys would do is they would take the money, but they'd all kind of pile into a house and then they would have extra money every month. And that appealed to Ron, apparently. That was one of the one of the things. So you just never know with some kids how how much things factor in. Yeah, and I think I think there's definitely
1: a lot there there's a lot of Notre Dame football recruits that aren't that aren't their families aren't struggling as much as there could be at other schools. So there might not be a as big of a need to be chasing money from, from, from different uh, avenues. So I think that that could play an impact too. I, I don't, I, I think it's just a, a, one of those things that probably maybe it's, it's I don't think it's going to make it be a huge differentiator between schools, but if if there's, if it's close to a tie and you can't, you can't figure out where you want to do, maybe this is one of those things that, that pushes you over at the top, but I, I don't, I don't think it's going to be like a, a big, a main factor of why a kid would choose to go to Notre Dame. Next question we have is from at NDF underscore discord. Is there an update on the potential hiring of an offensive and/or defensive recruiting coordinator? There were some reports about a month ago that ND was looking to hire a recruiting coordinator on the defensive side. Do you, I could probably jump in on that. Since I'll I let
2: you jump really. in and I'll follow up.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't have an update right now. Um, I reported at the time when this uh, story came about was that, and the, the story was was being told elsewhere was that Chad uh, Bowden. Um, was coming from Cincinnati to join Notre Dame as some sort of defensive recruiting coordinator and working with Marcus Freeman. Um, I reported at the time that multiple sources at Notre Dame who would certainly know what his role would be um, couldn't confirm any details with me. Um, And I also learned that uh, Notre Dame has been under a hiring freeze. Um, So if they were creating a new position, there might be some red tape to sort through there. Um, it's, It's likely a matter of semantics. I think, uh, Chad Bowden will probably be on Notre Dame staff in some way, but I don't really know the details of what that's going to look like. If there will be another hire to, to go on the offense, I, or if he's replacing someone, I don't know the details of that. And I think that's sort of why I've mostly held off on sort of analyzing what this means for Notre Dame. Cause we don't really know what exactly it is yet.
2: Well, what I would follow up, With is It looks like I'm going to talk to Athletic Director Jack Skorberg next week. I'm not sure which day yet, but I think that's when it's going to happen. And I want to get into this and some of the other things. I know a lot of people have questions about the size of Notre Dame's recruiting operation beyond the assistant coaches. And, again, I want to talk to him in terms of long-term, what they want to do with that, and short-term, what does the pandemic limit them? and being able to do that. So I think in the coming weeks, you're going to get more clarity on what Tyler talked about and also this this broader picture of the recruiting operation. Next question we have is from at Greg2126. Why do you
1: think the defense, which ranked 20th in SP+, plus and 24th in FEI, is seen by fans as a great success, and the offense ranked 19th in SP+, plus and 17th in FEI, is seen as less than a great success. Shouldn't they be viewed similarly?
2: No, not necessarily. And, and here's why. And, and I'm, you know, Greg, I'm going to take, uh, take you at your word that your math and what you're quoting us is correct, but I'm going to use it in terms that I understand a little bit more. I know what the FEI is. I don't know what the SP plus is. Um, but I'm going to use rankings from the NCAA. I think a lot of people can kind of relate to that. So in two really key offensive rankings, let's look at the four playoff teams. Let's look at pass efficiency. Alabama was one. Ohio State was nine. Clemson was 15. Notre Dame was 43rd. Okay. So some, something there is not like the others. Total offense, Alabama 4, Ohio State 7, Clemson 10, Notre Dame 26. So even though Notre Dame's numbers are not bad, they're very inferior compared to their competition. Let's flip it to defense, couple key stats. Total defense, Clemson 15, Notre Dame 25, Alabama 32, Ohio State 59. Notre Dame's the second best of the bunch there. Rush defense, Ohio State 6, Clemson 15, Notre Dame 16, Alabama 17. So Notre Dame is right there. Notre Dame is playing to the model of national championship teams and playoff teams where they are most separated from being a team that wins playoff games is on offense, and that's why I think you're doing that. The other other thing is in the big games – consistently when you look at those eight losses over the four years you know some of those are on big big stages and where notre dame falls down is on offense and that's why i think the criticism is more on offense or at least the dissection is more on offense than it is on defense and defense has been consistently improving
1: yeah this question made me think about a lot of different things and it almost got me getting a little bit philosophical about how we sort of watch sports as or watch football as fans. Um, I I think just to start, I'm not sure that many fans know what SP plus is and what FEI is. Um, And I'll admit that my knowledge of them, uh, those are are somewhat limited. I, I, I have a somewhat of an understanding of them. I know SP plus that's supposed to be a a predictive stat. Um, And they also ranked Notre Dame 16th overall to end the season um, and I, I'm not sure that that didn't sort of compute in my head of, of why that would make sense. So, so I guess maybe, I mean, I think in general, if like you and I embrace these uh, in a different way that, that maybe then we would a uh, reader, readers and fans would, would embrace them more and have a better understanding for them. Um, but I'm not sure that there's any stats that would necessarily convince dissatisfied, dissatisfied viewers Um of that point. Like, I think it comes down to how Notre Dame's losses have looked sort of like you mentioned in, in almost every bad loss, the offense just hasn't looked up to par. Uh, even if the defense hasn't looked great, the offense hasn't really inspired a lot of hope in those losses. And I think that's just kind of hard to watch when you're a fan if the offense isn't having much success. Um, even if the defense isn't, isn't playing great either, but the, the offense, I think is just more of a blow when you're watching it. And I think, um, some of it probably comes back to a lingering dissatisfaction with what they believe Brian Kelly would bring to the program, I think. And he came to Notre Dame before I started covering Notre Dame, but I think there was sort of this perception that he was a quarterback guru who would bring a high-flying offense to Notre Dame. And um, so I think they're always going to be tougher on the offense um, because of what they believe Brian Kelly would mean for Notre Dame. Um, And I, I think stepping away from Notre Dame specifically, I think, fans can easily second-guess play calling on offense because um, I think it's easier to understand than what the defense is doing. You, you can kind of tell what the play is, and you can have your opinion on what the, if the play was a bad design or um, was a, or the wrong decision to run or pass. But defense, you don't necessarily understand the scheme or get a good concept of what it was. You don't really notice it unless a player makes a great play or, or sort of makes a mistake. And so I think when a mistake gets made on defense, it gets 10 – Fans tend to blame it on the player more than they blame it on the play call, where I think it's a little bit different on offense. Um, and I think that's, um, there's maybe there's, there's less of an understanding of the defense. And I mean, maybe it's something I was even like, this seems like kind of weird, but when you watch a, re, when they show replays of a, of a play, you usually get the offensive perspective. There's not a camera from behind the defense. You're not really, you don't see what the defense is seeing. So I think the whole, the whole like, I think the way people consume football is just so heavily predicated on offense. So I, I, I think I probably thought about this way more than I should have, but I, thought, I found it pretty fascinating to maybe um, get a better understanding of why people get so hot and bothered about offensive stuff when um, there isn't usually that sort of passion when it comes to the defense. All right, next question I have for us is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie not including early enrollees, which players do you think stand to benefit most from a strong spring? And who do you think Notre Dame will ultimately sign for quarterback in 2022? And on your dream team, who would you like them to sign at quarterback? So a few different questions there for Marie.
2: So for um, players that could benefit from the spring, boy, there's a lot of them. And I try to boil it down some, but I'm not sure how successful. I think a wide receiver, Jordan Johnson and Xavier Watts, two guys that really could have benefited from a normal non-pandemic year. Jordan with a better summer, Xavier with a head start in the spring. I think their seasons could have looked different. Um, And I think they need to have good springs because there's some talented guys coming up behind them too. Um, And then – I went to the offensive line group and I think the guys that are trying to work their way into that top five, like Andrew Christophic, Dylan Gibbons, Quinn Carroll, and Tosh Baker. On defense, I looked at the ends because there's opportunities for younger players to kind of step forward and establish themselves and maybe fend off the need to add a grad transfer, although I still think Notre Dame probably will look at that. But like Jordan Batello could really be a key tag team guy with Isaiah Foskey. Alexander Aaronsberger has a chance, and Nana safomensa to have a big role at the big end position. You know, I think as far as like linebackers and rovers, you know, everybody that played Buck linebacker last year is in that boat. And I think Isaiah Pryor in terms of the rover. It, you know, he, this is his window of opportunity to become a starter, and it could close quickly if he doesn't take advantage of it. Because, um, because Prince Collie's going to be really good at some point. We just don't know how soon, and he's not here yet. And then I think, uh, as far as uh, secondary, Houston Griffith, it always seems like it's a big spring for him, but this more than ever. And then at cornerback, I think all those guys, but I would say Tariq Bracey and Cam Hart are the guys with real opportunities to establish themselves as starters. Yeah, oh, and yeah. I'll get to the other quarterback part of it, but let you do your part there. Yeah,
1: I, I, you did name a lot of guys, and I think that's a reflection of where, I mean, how many holes Notre Dame has to fill next season, um, I think. Every, I think pretty much everyone on the offensive line, it's a big spring for because there's lots of playing time available. Um, I think just about every cornerback, it's a big spring for. I, I mean, you probably assume Clarence Lewis is going to be able to stick as a starter, but we, I, we, we especially as, as reporters, have no idea what those, who, uh, who else is going to be stepping up in those roles and what that's going to look like. So I think those guys have big springs out of them. I agree with Houston Griffith. Um, and the receivers, I think those are those are the positions that I see the biggest opportunity. And I even,
2: I even discipline myself. I mean, I cut out people like Kevin Bauman at tight end and things like that. You
1: know? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a big spring. I mean, pretty much for at least one person at every position, that's usually how it works. And, I mean, we didn't mention the quarterbacks who there's a starting quarterback job open for. Um, so it's obviously going to be a huge spring for the quarterbacks as well. Um, so speaking of quarterbacks, a nice transition, who do you think Notre Dame will ultimately sign in the 2022 class?
2: Well, and I think she wanted to know which quarterback we would, would be the dream team quarterback. And I think that guy is going to end up committing elsewhere. And that's Ty Simpson. And I guess that would be the guy I would pick. He is the highest rated of those three. And I think he's also got the best offer list and probably fits what Notre Dame wants to be and they just kind of got in on him late, and it looks like I think he pushed his announcement date back a week to next Friday uh, because of the weather in Tennessee, and he's not going to pick Notre Dame. So then it comes down to a couple guys that they've had offers out to for a while, and then a guy that they haven't offered yet that that may enter the picture. And the two guys they've offered are uh, Steve Angeli, and Gavin Wimsat and Gavin is by far the more highly um as far as rivals goes the highly rated player Steve Angeli has the better offers um and I think most people think Steve Angeli is going to end up being that quarterback Gavin Wimsat is more of a dual threat he's played more Angeli his lower rating I think is due to opportunity and there's the thought that this is a guy that's ready to soar and really move up a lot in the rankings. And then there's um, Drew Aller, who's uh, from Medina, Ohio. He's 6'5", 220, doesn't have a lot of great offers. He had a lot of MAC offers, but there's a thought that that's also an ascending prospect. And keep in mind with these ratings, there haven't been as much opportunities to evaluate players on a national basis. So these could – Once the pandemic ends, these ratings could change dramatically. I I think it's a shame that Notre Dame couldn't be more of a player with Ty Simpson because I think they need kind of that caliber of a quarterback. So I would say of the others, whoever's the ascending kind of guy, the guy that has the highest ceiling, I think since you already have Tyler Buckner on your roster, I would go with that and roll the dice a little bit than the guy with the highest floor.
1: Yeah, I I don't have a good enough grasp of all the 2022 quarterbacks that are out there beyond the guys that they have offered, so I don't know that I have a great sense of who my dream team guy would be. Um, But I agree with you that Steve Angeli seems to be the most likely guy at this point to be um, the quarterback that signs with Notre Dame in the 2022 class, and we'll see sort of what kind of prospect he is. And you're right about the QB evaluation. I mean, I think the last big – Quarterback. I mean, Elite 11 is a big quarterback camp that's usually run um, every year, and uh, that was somewhat limited last year, although I think they did actually proceed with it um, in the pandemic, and that was where Tyler Buckner actually received some negative reviews, um, and that was the last time there was like a national Elite 11 uh, get-together for that, and that's mostly guys that were going to be seniors, so we don't have sort of evaluations of the younger class from that. Um, So I think – uh, it, it's interesting to see where, where Notre Dame's going because I think we've talked about it before. That's a clear area where Notre Dame can impact its team if you get better quarterback recruits, and they just have not gotten the elite guys um, during the Brian Kelly era. Although um, there have been guys that have been panned or, or um, proposed as elite, um, whether it's Brandon Wimbush or Gunnar Keel, um, and those guys haven't necessarily worked out.
2: The Aller kid fits in with the recruits that they have being 6'5. They have not gotten a commitment from anybody shorter than 6'4, I think, at this point.
1: All right. Well, there you go. That's that's the data you need to know. Uh, next question we have is from at Coffee Dark Rose since draft is coming since the draft is coming up, how much do NFL GMs keep in mind which university coordinator and position coach the player being drafted has? Does our stock rise because ND has produced stars in the past or any offensive line or the opposite, like Brian Kelly can't produce quarterbacks. So don't draft Ian book.
2: You know, I, Scott Wright has been kind of a long time cohort of ours. He's he's helped us out a lot, runs a site called draft and has for years and he's getting out of the industry. And I'm sorry to hear that, but, One of our last conversations we had, we talked about this very point. And yes, there is a bounce, especially for Notre Dame with offensive linemen and tight ends. And that's why he thinks Brock Wright might get drafted. That's why Tommy Kramer, after being a strangely first team All-American and and first round draft choice on a lot of sites the year before, uh, I think he is a guy that will benefit from that as well um, Hainsey, um, Banks, you know, even, even a guy that's the best line prospect that they have, Liam Eichenberg, I think may move up around just based on what laugh left tackles have done at Notre Dame since, you know, the middle, I guess the last three starters have all been first round draft choices. And so, there was a great respect for what Harry Easton could do. I think Jeff Quinn is getting a lot of respect as well in terms of his development of players. So uh, yes, that is real. I
1: I think it probably influences draft analysts more than it influences the NFL personnel. Like that's, that's how Tommy Kramer ends up being projected as a first round draft pick because he was a highly rated recruit and he's at Notre Dame. So they assume that he's going to be a high draft pick. Um, but certainly, NFL personnel has relationships at the college level that they rely on as well beyond just sort of um, the knowledge of um, this school always produces this these good position players. Um, but the Chargers general manager seems to really like uh, Notre Dame players, Tom Telesco, um, and that's partially because he's known Brian Pullian since he was a kid. They went to high school and the same college, um, so he can he feels like he can tap into Brian Polian as a as someone who. Um, you can trust and and can get a good evaluation for those Notre Dame guys. And I think, I think good scouts are probably going to trust their opinions first rather than sort of blindly following like, well, he's from this school or he's, he had this guy coaching him. But I I do think like when you're, when you're trying to project how a kid will turn out to be as an NFL player, you need to get a sense of what his potential is and that you you need to also understand like, okay, has he reached his potential based on the coaching um, that he has or is there a lot of room still left for improvement? And is it because he's had poor coaching or is it the player's fault that he hasn't reached that potential? And do you feel like your coaching staff can um, connect that gap between where the player is at and what his potential is? So I think it definitely plays a role in, in multiple different ways, um, but it's not, it's not like a, okay, this kid went to Notre Dame. So let's, let's bump him up around a because he played offensive line for Jeff Quinn. I don't think it's as simple as that, um, but it definitely has, has an impact. Next question is from Joe Esquire at sad Irish fan 13 is Avery Davis going to have as big a role in next year's offense as he did this past season.
2: I think so. I think at least at the beginning of the year, you know, he's a good leader. I think he's got a lot of respect from teammates and he's got a chance to be a captain. And if he's a captain, that means he's likely going to play. Um, I think the variable here is Lorenzo Styles Jr. Um, and there's even if Lorenzo is turns out to be as good as I think he's going to be, there's room to play a couple of slots or even three slot receivers. You know, Notre Dame hasn't had a history of of great production from that slot receiver position during the Brian Kelly era. It's been more average to below average than really good through that time. And and this may be the time that there's a real surge there. So I think Lorenzo Styles is going to play into that, but I still think Avery Davis is going to have a role. He's He's got experience and he's got some big catches under his belt now.
1: Yeah, I think Avery Davis is probably a, a player who's underappreciated by Notre Dame fans um, from my perspective, and maybe even underutilized Notre Dame's offense at times, probably um, last year made more sense because the, the strength of your tight end position that the, the, the slot receiver wouldn't have a, a huge role in the offense. But I think there's probably more, even more opportunity this year than I don't know that they'll run as much to tight end packages. Um, now, can other guys take playing time away from Avery Davis? I, I think that's an absolute possibility. Um, but those guys have sort of have to earn the trust that he already has, has earned um, whether it's the outside receivers getting more involved in the offense with Kevin Austin Jr. and Braden Lindsay, um, or even Lawrence Keyes, a guy that we've sort of liked as a player, but hasn't really made those uh, impacts on the playing field on Saturdays. Um, I, I don't think Avery Davis is going to be the focal point of the offense, um, but I think uh, his role will probably be very dependent on sort of how the rest of the guys around him sort of ascend. Um, and I, I'm a huge Lorenzo Styles fan I, I ranked him second in, in in my rankings of the the 2021 uh, class um for Notre dame so I, I think he has a very bright future and uh he will have the potential to take some playing time away from avery davis as well next question we have is an email from rick um when a kid receives a Notre Dame scholarship offer are they told it is commutable or contingent on others on other offers already extended for instance they give out 10 scholarships to cornerbacks but obviously they want the top of the board kids. Are the others told they cannot commit until they are informed?
2: From what I understand, Notre Dame, and just from hearing it from both the coaching end of it and from the prospect end of it, the Notre Dame is pretty transparent. You know, they don't try to trick kids into thinking that they're higher on the board than they are. I think they're really straightforward with telling them. And I think as long as I can remember, I can only remember one kid in in football committing and surprising the coaches, and it was a hiccup. It wasn't supposed to happen. It was a wide receiver. I think he ended up going to Purdue. Yeah, T.J. Um, Sheffield. Yeah, and so so they're they're very good at saying, yeah, here's here's kind of where you are on our board. Uh, you know, they don't try to sugarcoat that and worry about losing the guys that are further down on the board. I can remember it happening once in women's basketball, and it ended up being a really good thing. Um, and it was Ashley Barlow uh, who ended up being a great player, but she surprised the heck out of Muffet- McGraw. They didn't mean for it to be kind of a convertible offer and she committed right away and she ended up being an outstanding player. So I think Muffet was pretty happy that she ended up doing that. Yeah. This
1: question comes up from time to time. And for whatever reason, I've never really pushed play like recruits or coaches about like, Hey, how does this work out and sort of get the, the details of how this, those conversations go. And obviously I'm not sitting in on those conversations, so I don't exactly know what they sound like or look like. Um, But I think there's sort of this understanding in college football now and in recruiting that an offer doesn't mean you have a spot reserved in your in the recruiting class. I, I don't know that that's how folks operate. I don't think play, recruits feel that way necessarily. Offers are just so commonplace now that I don't think it's something that it's like, okay, if we offer you, that means we're ready for you to sign on that. If we, if we could have you sign a national letter of intent tomorrow, we would, that's not, the, offer, the offers aren't, I guess, it's, I don't know if serious is the way to describe that, but they're not, they're not, they're not necessarily that tangible, I guess. Um, and so I think it's incumbent upon the staff to know if a, if a recruit is going to be like wanting to commit right away if he receives an offer. And I think that informs how the staff sort of communicates with that player and, and handles their, rec- their, their recruitment moving forward. If you feel, strongly that a kid would commit to Notre Dame upon uh, offering him but he's lower on your board you don't you just don't offer yet you you hold out and sort of slow play that and if you feel like you need to offer to stay in the running for some reason then maybe you encourage the kid to visit before considering committing there's ways to sort of um get around being like hey this is an offer but it doesn't actually mean anything and you gotta you gotta wait till seven other guys tell us no before you can do anything with it that's they might be they might be fairly honest with kids but they're not being that honest with kids. I don't think that's how it's being communicated to players or recruits. Um, kids are too fickle to know exactly where their, where their placement is because they would they, I don't think that they would handle that information that well um, and it would sort of ruin your chances with a kid if you were that blunt with them. Um, so uh, but I think if the kids can pay attention to the way a coach communicates with them, um, they'll get a sense and, and, and even how frequently they communicate with them they'll get a sense for how committable their offer is at sort of any, any kind of moment in their, in their recruitment. Next question is from Rick Dyroff at Rick Dyroff one. Have you guys heard anything about the early impressions of the early enrollees? It's
2: a lot of early. Right. Well, it's awful early. Um, <laughs> typically, you know, they they come back in the middle of January this year, they start classes on February 3rd. So we're a couple weeks in I'll have to admit, I haven't had my antenna up very high on that yet, just dealing with other things. You know, usually about a month in, you start to hear rumblings, and some of them are valuable, and some of them aren't. I I can remember Justin Brent, boy, Brian Kelly was, just felt like he was absolutely looked the part, and he did, uh, but he didn't play the part. Um, And you'll hear the opposite of guys being out of shape and, then they end up being these terrific players. And I think, you know, Dalen Hayes had an injury and Collin Kareem maybe wasn't super impressive walking in the door. And then they ended up being pretty impressive, both of them down the road. But I do think it's fun to hear that kind of stuff, but you're basing it on them doing, you know, conditioning drills and you like to hear guys are working hard in the weight room, especially if there's somebody that's kind of, You know, like the defensive ends, the freshman defensive ends, I think you'd want to hear that they're taking root in the weight room because the chances of them playing are tied to their development in the weight room more than it is maybe their skills. They're very skilled, but they are very underweight for college defensive ends. Yeah, I I have not done much
1: digging on this. I think winter workouts just started this, this week. Um, so other than like what, whether the kid has manners or shows up to class on time, I don't know that the coaches have a ton of insight um, that they've been gaining uh, on these early enrollees yet that that, that is still to come. Um, so that I, that I, I don't uh, know that we would learn a lot about asking around about, um, what kind of shoes uh, Tyler Buckner is wearing to class or if, it, if his, if his coat is as heavy as it should be if coming from California. Uh, I know we talked to him about that when we have him on our podcast. So uh, they need to just make sure these kids, especially these California kids can handle the the cold weather we're, we're, we've been dealing with uh, here in South Bend um, as they've started their first semester of college. Uh, we got another question from at coffee, dark roast. And he said, what, or which offensive weapon transfer pair would you have rather had in 2020? The 2016 class of KJ Stefferson and Dion McIntosh or the 2017 class of Michael Young and CJ Holmes. And he says, uh, this is ignoring the their off the field issues.
2: Right. And Michael Young didn't have any off the field issues, but the other people did. Um, so for me, this is really easy. I mean, Realistically, you could take out the running backs because neither of them are beating out Kyron Williams or Chris Tyree. But McIntosh had a decent year in four games with Washington State this year. Um, he averaged uh, about eight yards, seven, eight yards a carry, 323 yards on 52 carries, three touchdowns in just four games. CJ Holmes has transferred twice. he's a defensive back now didn't play a lot for Kent State this year on a bad Kent State defense eight tackles in the four games that he played. So so let's look at Kevin Stefferson and Michael Young. if you are not taking into account character Kevin Stefferson all day long. He give he would have given Notre Dame that stretch the field receiver, on the open outside position, and I think it would have helped Notre Dame considerably. Michael Young was Cincinnati's leading receiver in terms of receptions, kind of a modest number for 10 games, 29 for 323 yards, three touchdowns, averages 11 and a half. But if you go personality and the whole package, Michael Young all day long, but just pure talent, the Kevin Stefferson package is the one I'm taking.
1: That that's uh interesting on uh, the Cincinnati stats. You think their fans are saying that their offense isn't explosive enough and they can't compete at a national level with <laughs> <laughs> with those stats as
2: their leading receiver? Um, I think uh, uh, that the one thing was they had a guy with 29 catches, 28, 27. I mean, they were very balanced. They right. spread it around a lot, but you you know, 11 point whatever isn't a huge number for a wide receiver.
1: Yeah. um, I think Kevin Stefferson blows everyone else out of the water when it comes to this conversation. You could throw Deion McIntosh in and make it those other three, those other two guys into a trio. And I would still take Kevin Stefferson over that, that he was the best player in the bunch by a pretty wide margin, in my opinion. So um, that would be a pretty easy pick. Um, Unfortunately uh, that didn't work out. He had off the field uh, issues and, His career didn't really necessarily pan out at Jacksonville State when he ended up down there. He didn't have a lot of – he didn't have very prolific numbers. I know he was recently uh, at a workout with uh, Ian Book, um, and they were throwing passes. Uh, Ian was throwing passes to him. Um, And I think uh, um, he's going to try to make a run at making the NFL, so maybe the NFL will give him a chance, and he's uh, maybe cleaned up his act off the field. Um, because he certainly was a heck of a talented player uh, on the field, and showed that pretty early in his Notre Dame career. Next question is from at real pgd1. Will ND football have a kick return touchdown
2: next year? You know, it's some of it depends on who the kickoff man is for the other team. You know, are are you going to have even opportunities to return it? Period there were only 42 kickoff returns for touchdowns in all of college football this year out of 127 teams, all playing different numbers of games. So certainly lower number of games than we typically see in a season, but 42 right. isn't a very big number. I mean, Chris Tyree has run has run a running, a kind of just a very basic running play for over 90 yards. So I think he's certainly capable of doing that. So if I had to flip a coin, yeah, I'll say yes because I think he's capable of it. Now, will it happen? I don't know, but but he certainly has the speed to do it if he gets out in the open.
1: Yeah, I agree with you there that he's capable, and I think Lorenzo Styles is a guy that would be capable as well if they gave him the opportunity. Um, but I, I probably want to—I would want to see one of those guys do it before. Uh, predicting yes, Notre Dame hasn't had one since 2016, um, when C.J. Sanders had two returns for touchdowns. Um, and there's fewer kick returns now too. Obviously, some of that is in 2016 the defense was so bad, so the opposing team was kicking off a lot more. Uh, they had Notre Dame had 38 kick returns that season, um, and last year they had only 23, uh, and in 2018 they only had 13, which is kind of crazy. Um, and that's that's in part due to more touchbacks and fair, the fair catch touchback rule um, gives teams more of an incentive to not return kicks. Um, So it's funny that um, it's a possibility that um, Notre Dame, even if their defense is really bad, they might not have a lot of kick return opportunities or choose not to return a lot of kicks because it's it's not always advantageous to do so. Um, Chris Tyree had some opportunities and certainly against Alabama, uh, fumbled one that he recovered. Um, I'm sure that wasn't the most. Uh, and then I think he was stuck fair catching for the rest of the game, no matter what sort of the uh, situation was, if there was bad hang time or not. But um, I think I, I know some people, there was some, one person that was going back and forth with me on Twitter this week about the special teams um, uh, as it relates to, um, I think it was connected to when the, the title rules were announced, new title rules were announced for, Brian Pullian and Mike Elson switching as associate head coach and recruiting coordinator. Um, and that they think that Brian Pullian needs to do a better job at special teams. And the kick, the, I think the, the term that was being used is that Notre Dame was subpar um, on special teams. And I looked up their average uh, or where they ranked in various uh, um, uh, special team statistics and they were above average in just about all of them. So I, I think the perception of special teams is, it's kind of off people like want the days of rocket Ishmael to be, be back, but that's not how college football works anymore. It's, there's, there aren't rocket Ishmaels at any other schools either. It's not like Notre Dame is the only one that can't, there isn't returning punts and kickoffs for touchdowns on a regular basis. Um, and so I think uh, um, I, I don't see that, that I do see, like you, like we mentioned, Chris Tyree and Lorenzo styles are talented enough to maybe do that, but it's just harder to, to return. I mean, even the, the way you're allowed to block, um, it is different um, in terms of kick returning. So I think uh, um, it's, uh, it's, it's not as easy as it once was, and there's, there's, there's fewer opportunities and less of an, of an incentive to try to do so. Next question is from at Finger G. I like Brian Kelly, and he's done a great job riding the ship since the disaster of the pre, three previous regimes. But how much longer does he get at his age with no national championships? Typically it takes a national championship to get a coach that much time at a blue blood seems odd for him to have the longest tenure at Notre Dame.
2: Well, I give him credit for saying that Brian Kelly is right the ship because I've gotten emails where Brian Kelly has done no right during his time. <laughs> um, and, and then it's finished with how much longer does he get? Well, first of all, he signed through 2024, so you're paying him through 2024, um, and he could stay longer. He could stay less. He could decide to retire earlier than that. Um, I, I These questions kind of baffle me a little bit because especially with him prefacing that Brian Kelly's right of the ship, I mean, he's been in the playoff Two out of the last three years, they're 43-8 and in the last four years. Um, And he's a guy that's not making excuses about why they haven't won a national championship. He's digging in, trying to figure out better ways to get there. So I'd say they're just going to stick with him until Brian Kelly wants to retire. I don't see them forcing a change there, if that's what the question is actually is. And I do think it's interesting that Brian Kelly will be the longest tenured Notre Dame football coach, but some of it is the way that Brian Kelly's taking care of himself. And a lot of times when I've done some one-on-one interviews, I've asked him how he keeps from getting sick, how he keeps from getting stressed because era procedure walked away at age 51 because of health reasons. Frank Leahy was forced to walk away at age 41 because of health reasons. Lou Holtz ran into a regime change that didn't agree with him. You know, Lou was 59 when he left. Brian is 59 now. Brian will be the first coach at Notre Dame to coach as a 60-year-old. And when you think about other, you know, blue bloods, there have been, you know, Bear Bryant was certainly older than 60. Woody Hayes was older than 60. Bo was older than 60. 60. So some of it has to do with being able to handle the pressures of the job and Brian Kelly's been able to do that. So I'm babbling here because I don't understand the question and I don't have a great answer to it. Yeah, I think,
1: I think probably describing what Brian Kelly has done at Notre Dame as riding the ship is probably not giving him enough credit. I think he's he's done more than just like get them back on, on, on track or whatever. I mean, he's taken... The program to places where they hadn't been in a very long time. Um, he's so, raised
2: the expectations,
1: yeah. And I, uh, well, I, I guess, I, I guess the realistic expectations, yes. I, I think the expectations have always been sky high from Notre Dame, at least from my perspective. I think everyone's going to expect that whether or not it's realistic or not.
2: They, they think Notre Dame should be well, national championship. When, I mean, under Bob Davy and Willingham, the thought was they would never be relevant, right? They would never be relevant in the national championship picture, and they have been. You know, they play for a national championship, and they've been to two playoffs.
1: Yeah, and so I mean, barring some sort of collapse, Brian Kelly is going to be here until he wants to leave. I don't think uh, there's Notre. Dame. it would have to do Notre Dame would have to go in a very wrong direction, um, the football program, for him to be fired in some way. Um, if he if he can get the team to the playoffs every few years like he has as of late, um, then that's what you're 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 trying to do obviously you want to win a national championship too, but you got to get to the playoff to do that. So, um, and I think having a national championship on your resume is, is not exactly a reasonable thing to ask. Like there's only six active coaches in college football that have won national championships. So it's not like Brian Kelly is, is the only coach at a big big time program that hasn't won a national championship. Um, so the, 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 length of his tenure thing is, I mean, to me, that's kind of the Notre Dame fans caring more about their tradition than they, they maybe should. Like, uh, I mean, they, they should care about their tradition, but like Brian Kelly coaching at Notre Dame longer than New Rockney isn't going to take Newt Rockney's legacy. Like, everyone knows what New Rockney did for Notre Dame. Just because Brian Kelly is going to last in Notre Dame longer than him doesn't isn't going to take away from Newt, what New Rockney did or mean that Brian Kelly is a better coach than New Rockney. That's, I mean, that's sort of a false equivalency there. So I, I don't know that. That 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 matters too much. So whether or not you feel that's that's odd, um, I think I think I mean coach. I think it's easier for a coach to coach later into his career now because uh, coaches are generally can be healthier and uh, um, humans in general can be healthier going later into their their years. So I think that probably plays a role as well uh, that Brian Kelly can easily coach into his 60s and could probably coach for much longer after that if he wanted to. But I don't know that we get the sense that he's that Brian Kelly's going to be coaching into his 70s or anything like that. Um, Then the last question we have is basketball-related from at Irishfan102. Will Coach Bray be the basketball coach next season?
2: Well, I certainly see a lot of people that want to have a change there, and I understand that sentiment a little bit better. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But, I mean, given – the recruiting that's gone on this year and the potential that this team is going to be better next year. I I don't see why you would make that change. You know, I think when it's the time for Mike Bray to move on to something else, I think both Jack Swarbrick and Mike Bray will know it. Um, But I don't, I don't look at them and say, boy, they're just underachieving Uh, I think people are just tired of looking at him, but (laughs) I think that Mike Bray does a lot of things that endear him to um, the media, for example, which I think helps him that the media is on his side. You know, I think if he was a a, a really unpleasant person, then they might be like, yeah, let's get rid of this guy. Um, But I'm, you know, I'm guessing at saying he's going to be back, but I think he will. I don't see a compelling reason to get rid of him.
1: Yeah, um, I'll I'll start this by deferring to Tom Noy, who certainly knows better than us about the basketball program. Did you you do
2: a phone a friend on this one?
1: I didn't do a phone a friend. I I looked through his old chats to see if he had tackled this question or someone similar to it before uh, making him waste his time by sharing his insight with me. Um, and last month in one of his chats, um, Tom said that he'd be surprised, even shocked if Bray's not back for next season. So I, I'm not going to disagree with Tom there. Um, as a casual observer of the Notre Dame bas- basketball program, men's basketball program, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed that it would have been as clear cut as Tom indicated there um, because it, it does feel a little bit like the program has gotten stale and could use a bit of a jolt. Um, and you wonder if Br- Mike Bray, can still push those buttons or is able to to make the changes that they need to do to get back to where they were, and not honestly, not that long ago in the NCAA tournament. Um, but I, I have to imagine certainly the financial impact of the pandemic would, would make it harder to let go of a coach that you trust right now. Um, and so that, that probably plays somewhat of a role. I'm sure fans don't want to hear that. Um, but I, I think it, it seems likely, um, unless Mike Bray has a change of heart, that he doesn't want to be back next season, that he will be back um, as the men's basketball coach next season. All right. That's it for today's episode of pot of gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. Uh, We'll likely be back in a couple weeks. I will be taking a week off next week, so we won't be doing one next week. Um, But we'll try to let the, the news dictate when we get back to together. Hopefully we can talk to some Notre Dame coaches sooner rather than later. Um, And we can bring you guys some new information. Um, Until then, stick with ndinsider.com for all your Notre Dame football offseason coverage needs.